на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. It's been a big week in Russian football, as we had last night, uh, as of recording, was the Russian Cup final, which Lokomotiv Moscow won again, and they became somewhat of an expert in that competition, winning four out of the last six editions of the Cup. Also this week, Stanislav Cherchesov named his bigger and full squad to be trimmed down for Euro 2020. The new Russian under-21 squad was named after a lot of players aged up and graduated even some of them too, the main squad. So there's lots of new names for analysis in there. And there's just one round of RPL fixtures as, the, as week 29 took place last weekend with some big intriguing fixtures. And our game of the week this week will be Ruben's 4-2 win away at Arsenal Tula. So we'll get full analysis of that and the reasoning why later on. To join me as always is Richard Pike. Good evening, James. How are we all? And David Sanson. Hello, hello. I thought I would um, change it around a little bit and see if I had you on the toes there for mixing the names up. Oh, I felt a bit sick, honestly, when you did it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lokomotiv have now won more Russian Cups than anyone else. Well, in fact, they already did. This is their ninth. CSK is second in terms of Russian Cups with seven. And Loco won it in 2021, 2019, 2017 and 2015. So you could say that they are pretty much experts. And on the day last night, they were simply a little bit too good for Carilia in terms of the genuine RPL quality really did shine through. And two players who starred for Lokomotiv in that match, who both scored in Francois Kamano and Fyodor Smolov, have actually starred for Loco during the entire second half of the RPL season. They've now got a combined 21 goals and assists since the return of football after the winter break. So, Richard, did you enjoy the game? And just did, first of all, did Lokomotiv deserve to win? Because I thought Krillia were pretty damn good on the night and played some really nice stuff. I caught the second half of it. Um, and I've seen highlights of the first half earlier today. I caught the second half of it live and saw highlights of the first half earlier today. i got to say, from the highlights of what I saw of the first half, I thought Krillia played very, very well. Um, and, you know, they had some decent chances in the first half. And it looked like, from what I saw the highlights of the first half, it looked like a pretty even game then. Obviously, I think um, I think just before half-time, when the score was 1-1, um, Guillermo made an excellent save from one of the Krillia players, whose name escapes me, had a shot. And he saved it onto the post. And um, who knows, that was probably a big moment in the game because if that had gone in and Quilly had gone in 2-1 up at half-time, then you just literally never know. Um, and, you know, they certainly tested Lokomotiv on the highlights that I saw the first half. Um, but then in the second half, I think it maybe focused Lokomotiv a bit more. Maybe they were actually stunned by how just how well Quilly did play in that first half. And, you know, they got the early penalty. I felt a bit sorry for the, the Quillia captain who gave away the penalty because even though he'll be the one who who gave the penalty away, you know, um, it was his teammate who made just as bad a mistake to let Jemalet uh, then off in, uh, who then squirted the ball across. And it, it was a penalty. Um, you know, I, felt, I felt sorry for him, but it, it, it was a penalty. And then, yeah, that, after that, I think Quillia's momentum subsided a bit. They still had chances, but I think Lokomotiv kept them more in check in the second half than and in the first, from what I saw, the first half um, on, on the highlights. And yeah, I think Lokomotiv probably on the, in the second half probably just about did enough. But but yeah, Quillia certainly gave them, give them a really good game. Um, and you know, they yeah. that's basically three sides that they've beaten. Well, Quillia have beaten three sides to get this far from the RPL and they gave a fourth one, one of the better sides in the league, you know, a decent run for the money in a cup final. So uh, they should be absolutely super proud of their efforts. Um, and just, so, yeah, just probably the RPL side probably just had a bit more quality at the end of the day. So, yeah, and Smolov and Kamano are actually the two top scorers in the competition with four for Kamano and three for Smolov. And that's pretty damn good considering that Lokomotiv come in at a later point in the competition. They don't play in these initial group stages because of their European commitments. But it was unfortunate for Karelia to an extent. I mean, I am going to 
say at the start, I will be a little bit biased. I would have loved to have seen Krillia win. Um, they would have been only the second Finnell side, or at the time Finnell side, to have won the trophy. And I don't know, David, could you want to have a guess? If you remember who the first one was way back in in the day, um, uh, I was wondering, but I've just had an idea. Was it Sibir, Novosibirsk? No, close. They got they were runners up. Richard, do you one one guess? Do you, can you think, Stab? Was it Terek in two thousand and four when it they was. Yeah, no, it was Terek back then. Yeah, so Terek back when they were not owned by a dictator and named after a river and not some man in Chechnya, uh, did win it in two thousand and four. Was the only Finnell side, and it would have been great to see Krilia do that, but. The way the game played out really played into Lokomotiv's hands for me. Um, Krillia had the majority of possession, the majority of shots on goal, and they played some really nice stuff. But unfortunately for them, that's kind of when Loco excel. It's when their backs are against the wall a little bit to that extent. And in every game this season, or the second half of the season, apart from when they were absolutely demolished deservedly by Zenit, um, they've sat back, they've defended deep and hit on the counter and it really just did fall into Lokomotiv's hands, Krillia's game game style. And I think, well, Krillia's young team is very exciting and I, and I hope they stay together to, to attack the RPL next season and to get a little bit of experience in to complement that exciting youth. Ironically, I think perhaps a little bit too much of that youthful exuberance was maybe made them a little bit naive on the on the day especially with the sort of mature battlers like Loco are in this trophy. David, what do you think? Um, how did Krillia play for you? Because I know you were very impressed by some of their build-up play in particular. Yeah, I mean, I caught, I caught the game. Krillia were by far the better team in the first half. Um, you know, They conceded one goal from one long ball uh, when maybe the Stefan uh, just tried to note it back to his keeper and he just got caught under it and it, the header looped rather than going straight back. And the Kamano just had, you know, uh, I was going to say simple, but it was quite a difficult technique because he had to volley it first time and just lob it over Lomayev, who had a good game in goal. Um, but after that and around that, Krillia were absolutely dominant. Uh, you know, he scored a really nice goal. And, like, the goal they scored was, was really good. Like, I saw people uh, on Russian Twitter comparing it to, like, the Arsenal for goal versus Norwich from years back. Well, no, it wasn't that good, but it, it was a nice, t- nicely worked move. As Richard said, they hit the post um, from Vichigov. Um, you know, big save from Guillerme. They had a couple of other good chances from uh, Alves and Yezhov. You know, it was just it was just one way traffic first half. Loco barely had a sniff, um, and the early penalty Segnav just killed the game entirely. Um, you know, if if that game goes ten minutes at nil nil in the second half with at the pace that the game carried on, I could have seen it opening up. Uh, into a really interesting, you know, because even at you know one or what half time, it was such a finely balanced game. Like they're having an end to end tie between two teams from two different leagues. Uh, but the penalty early second half, which was a penalty, you know, um, it just came from uh, Solvatinkov. I don't know. I don't know how the ball ended up with a local player, but anyway, it came towards Solvatinkov, and he just lost his balance as he tried to clear. In the box, and generally enough, then squared it into to uh, Smolov, who was yeah very clearly fouled by uh, Bozhin. Well, I might have almost saved it to be fair. Uh, and then after that, Loco, like I remember, at one point, Krillio attacked forward, and Loco had seven players in their own box uh, versus just Sergeyev, with because it was like a, a counter attack. That's how deep Loco were. It's seven players in or around their own penalty area versus one Krillio attacker. Um, so they they very much just went back to the wall at two one. Um, so the, the early penalty really killed the killed the flow of the game, and uh, it was a much poorer second half uh, as a neutral compared to the first. Mm. Um, yeah, and the game really just petered out. Then you know they brought on uh, Golinkov and Kabutov late on, but they didn't really have a chance to make an impact. And then very shortly thereafter, Loku got the third, just off a set piece. Set piece, you know, um, a relatively free header from Murillo, and it, that, that was that. So. You know, if we had two halves like the first half, you know, it was it would have been a fantastic cup final. But the the early penalty just killed it, and uh, um, ultimately, then Loco, you know, deserved it based on their defensive performance. They 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 didn't give Krillia much 
in terms of chances in the second half. I, I can re- recall very few chances they had second half, honestly. Um, but first half alone, it was anyone's game, and Crillia were were pretty much the better side. So yeah, it was it was a good game, and I think Crillia shown that when they come up next year, you know, if they keep that group of players together, they'll they'll be able to compete. So that is leading into really a good segue in for my next question. I mean, Ivan Sergeyev, of course, has been on fire for Krilia this season in the Finn at L. He scored, what, 53 goals and assists in just 48 games in both the Cup and League this season, which is Jeez. an <laughs> unbelievable figure. But first of all, Richard, in terms of Sergeyev, now, the in recent years, there's been a lot of... Finnael top scorers or among the top scorers like Alexander Rudenka when he was at uh, when he was at Torpedo, uh, Maxim Barsov when Sochi got promoted, uh, Igor Lebedenka when before then to be fair he was top one of the top scorers with um, Fakel, uh, Glushenkov in his time as a, as a youngster at, I think it was Chetanova and Spartak too, Artyom Kuleshev, uh, Kirill Panchenka, and of course Andrew a fellow RFN man would. Hate me if I didn't mention a certain Hassan Mamtov. These have all been players <laughs> who have either scored for fun in the league or have been up in and around some of the top scorers in the league in recent years. And to be fair, most of them, 90% of them, have moved into the RPL and really failed to impress. Mamtov, of course, being the biggest one out of the lot by the sheer numbers of goals he scored down there, was pretty bad for Angie, pretty poor for Orenberg as well. So, Richard, do you think that Sergeyev could make it because he had a few chances in the game but was really kept quiet by that well-marshaled locomotive backline. Well, I really hope so because, um, to be fair to him, these numbers that he's putting up are way off the scale compared to other strikers who've impressed um, at Feniel level before. The you know he, This rate of scoring is absolutely incredible. You know, that he, the, the numbers, the sheer numbers that he's putting up are just absolutely crazy. Um, I do hope he stays. I know we mentioned it on last week's pod, didn't we? That you know that about that um, that supposed release clause that he's got. I think it's around four hundred thousand euros, um, which will allow him to leave for another club. Um, personally speaking, I kind of hope he stays at Quillia. Um and I have a feeling he probably might because you know I, I think I think out of a sense of loyalty for one, um, he's got he's got a good um, vibe going there. You know everything's built around him. Um, and I also think as well, Krillia will want to keep him and, and, you know, maybe they're looking at it from a Sobolev point of view, maybe him too, if he gets a good half season at Krillia next season, first half of the season in the league and scores like 9, 10, 11 goals like Sobolev did, maybe then, you know, maybe also then that might flush some bids from other RPL clubs. You know, maybe maybe even they might want to play the waiting game and wait before they buy him because you just never know if, if someone jumped in took the punt and bought him now and he didn't deliver, then, you know, um, then it's not good. But, you know, I, I hope he stays at Quillia, even if it's just for half a season. And then, and then if he impresses and fires in goals like Sobolev did, then maybe in the January window, maybe someone will take um, a chance on him then. Um, but, yeah, in terms of like, obviously we don't know whether he is going to make the step up. It's the same in every country, everywhere, in every league, you know, can a striker take that next step up? Um, and I, I saw. I really, really hope he can do. Um, and that's why I think you know it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see what happens over the summer with him. Will clubs hang off and wait, or will they take the punt? Um, but I really hope he he can make the step up because, like I said, like I said earlier in, in um, just now, his his goal record is absolutely off the charts compared to anything that's come up from the Feniel before. Yeah, yeah. I think I was a little bit harsh in my immediate questioning of bringing up just the local game because it must be remembered how good this defence has been in the second half of the season. Of course, the Zenit result aside, which was just how good Zenit were that day. But if you look at Sergeyev, he doesn't... He's not particularly physically imposing like Sobolev is. He's only 183 centimetres. He's not particularly lightning fast like, say, some of the other players who have came through from that level and really thrived in the Premier League. So he does have that against him in terms of he's not one or the other in his physicality. But if you look at his record during the cup run and in, 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 a, in a wider context and not just that one single game, 
they defeated Akhmat in the semi, and yes, he scored a penalty. He was on, in, in penalties, but he had a very good game that day, and it was against Semyonov and Nizic and, and Wilka, like a very experienced backline. The game before that, he was absolutely brilliant against Dinamo Moscow, who had Odets and Neustadter at the back. And before that, Krilia tore Kimki apart. When, when Kimki were really on a very good run in the league, it was when Cherovchenka came in and they still had the managerial bounce from earlier on in the season. And, and they, they, I mean, you've seen their results in the league in the second half. Now, they did perhaps take their eye off the game a little bit here, but if you look at that Kimki team that Krilia ripped apart, it was a very, very strong side. And ironically, Krilia themselves were the ones who actually rotated. It was uh, Gatskan came into the team, Denis Yakuba for the first time in a couple of weeks. Um, Tipschenka did. I mean, Sarvelli was dropped. A lot of their regular play- players were dropped for that game, and they still tore Krilia apart. So... I would like to say that he can make it, and I think he will be one to watch, certainly next season, whether he's at Carilia or not. So uh, I like to think that he could, <laughs> and you can't look away from the sheer unbelievable level of those just <laughs> numbers alone. But as, as a last little thing on on Carilia and on the cup final in general, David, what, what do you think's next for them? Because they, of course have been granted their Premier League licence now after resolving some financial issues with the RPL. Uh, Roman Yezhov has already been linked with a, a move to Rubin. Can you see them keeping this side together or are they just going to do the old Krilia like you mentioned last week? Mm, it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, Zinkowski was linked away in, in the winter break um, and then the day after the window closed, there was quotes that he'd said that that he's now ready to go abroad. Um because he was being linked to Vitesse in the Netherlands, um, he's that squad's average age yesterday. The two oldest players were twenty eight years old. All the rest were twenty six or younger. Uh, yeah, Sergeyev's twenty six. Zinkowski's twenty four, I think twenty five, and the rest of that group are sort of between twenty two and twenty four, pretty much. So it's a, it's a, it is a young squad in general. No, no super young players, but in in terms of average age, you know, it is a young squad. You, you like to think that the core of that squad obviously is is largely Chertanova. You know, the managers from Chertanova, uh, they brought in eight players last summer from Chertanova. You know, Solotenkov, Gorshkov, Zinkovsky, Yezhov, Saveli, uh, Yakuba, Vyuchikov. That's, that's a big core there who all played for Chertanova in the past. And you feel like they that bond they've got together and that success they've had this season um, might be, it might be harder for them to leave than other players coming up and getting off from some big teams. You know, we've already seen, we say, we've seen Yershov linked to Rubin, uh, seen Yakuba linked to Krasnodar today uh, as well. And undoubtedly, you know, big gloves would be foolish not to look at some of these players. Obviously, Sergeyev being a prime candidate. Uh, I think a lot's going to depend on release clauses. You know, let's, uh, let's not forget... Um, Prutsev also joined Krilia from uh, Chertanova and Sochi signed him about two weeks later by activating his release clause uh, that he had in his Krilia contract, which was like, what, I think nearly a million euros. So the chances are they are going to have release clauses. You know, they thought that Segev is only 400,000 euros or something. So um, it, it might be a case of whether the players are wanting to go or not or whether they're willing to keep that group together and give it a go. Because no doubt there's going to be people after these guys. Um, for someone like Zinkovsky, you know, we we'd always push players and encourage them to go abroad um, if the if the option's there. You know, my my heart wants them to stay together and give it a go because you know you'd like to see this team who was just so dominant in the Feniel and and who played a style like compared to Nizhny Novgorod, Nizhny have scored far less goals and concede far less goals they're a team that pretty much just one nil their way to promotion uh, whereas Carilia play you know free free flowing attacking football we've seen them beat four RPL teams this season now um, Rotor, Kimki, Dino and Achma in the cup and give it a good go against Lokomotiv so you feel like that that squad should have the confidence to to stick together and give it a go but um, you know, it's going to be, be down to a lot of individual decisions and uh, it's going to be hard to hard to call, ultimately. 
Yeah, it is. It's, it's it will be a shame if it happens, but with the low low price of these release clauses, I honestly think it is a little bit of an inevitability that a lot of these will be moved on. Um, maybe not immediately. Even if some clubs, some of the higher clubs, get cold feet of whether or not these players can perform in the RPL, and come January and next summer, it, if they have stayed together, then it's it's an inevitability of when and not if a lot of these players, I think, will move on if they do make the jump, uh, make the jump in, in in level as highly expected. But if we now make the jump from the cup final and to the Senior side, Stanislav Cherchesov, as I mentioned at the top of the show, did announce his latest national team squad. Now, this is a full squad. It's not just it's not the final. It includes uh, a list of reserves and four names from which will be cut from this for the tournament at the end. Now, the squad is as follows: the goalkeepers are Jupin, Ludiov, Shunin, and Safanov. Uh, defenders, Zhikia, Dveev, Fernandez, Yevgenyev, Zhirkov, Karavayev, Kudryashov, Samoshnikov and Semyonov. In midfield, Barinov, uh, Rifat Shemaletinov, Mukin, Golovan, Zakarian, Zobnin, Fomin, Yonov, Kuzyaev, Mostovoy, Ozdoyev, Makarov, Miranchuk and Cherishev. And then Sobolev, Zuba and Zabolot near the strikers. He has named a list of reserves, including Maximenka, Smolnikov, Gazinski, Smolov, Mirozov, Chistyakov, and Lisovoy. Now, I must admit, some of these names are quite surprising to see. There's some crop of youngsters in there who were previously regulars in the under-21. We'll get on to why they aren't in that squad later on, but Arsen Zakarian is the first name that really stands out to me in and David and Alexi from RFN have been doing some research. And if Zakarian makes his debut for Russia in the friendlies against Poland in Bulgaria or the opening game of the Euros, he will become the youngest player to feature for the Russian national team, beating Igor Akinfeyev. Including Soviet-era players, he would be the third youngest player to receive a cap for, for Spornaya in history, behind Eduard Streltsov and Sergei Rodionov, which is... An unbelievable list of names, to be honest, to be to be alongside them too. So there are some surprises in there, and to be honest, I'm a little bit surprised that some of the reserves aren't in the squad. Chiefly, Smolov, David. Do you think, unless avoid David, what you, what do you think of this squad? Is this progressive from Starney or too many older names? Ah, uh, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? You know. I don't think any of us were expecting Zaharian to to be called up. You know, Stanny rarely called up anyone under the age of twenty five, and here he is calling up a, uh, a guy who's not even eighteen yet. Uh, among, amongst you know, Deveev, Yevgenyev, Samoshnikov, and uh, who's the other one, Makarov, who were all you know, twenty three or, or under. So uh, yeah, surprising answer for him. Sorry. So yeah, a surprising selection there with some of those names. Obviously, it's a bigger squad than normal, twenty-seven, but he's only having to cut four. So at least a couple of those guys that you know will go to the tournament. And Mukin, sorry, I forgot about Mukin uh, down there in the midfield. So um, yeah, a, a really weird mix of players because then you've got on the opposite end of the scale, you've got Yuri Zhirkov still there and Fedor Fyodor um, Kudryashov, you know, uh, and Yonov got like. It's just depressing to see Yonov there again. Like Mirzov has been in, like as much as we hate to say it sometimes, because you know he uh, has sort of been a bit of a villain at times for, for no re- real reason. Mirzov has been very good this season. I think he's more of a villain just because he plays for Kimki, um, and no one particularly likes Kimki. Um, but he has been insanely good this season. Uh, he, you know, he only he suits a very specific style, but. I think he deserves to be in the squad far more than Yonov, but it's just Stanny with his mates again, you know. We we saw him call up Gabulov constantly because they were mates from Dynamo days. Uh, I'm assuming Yonov and, and Stanny also have a relationship from their Dynamo days. Um, so yeah, it, it's, a, it's a bit annoying to see names like that. I mean, the strikers list is highly, uh, highly depressing, you know. The average height between those three is six foot three, and let's be honest, every opponent now knows how Russia is going to play. 
get the ball to the big guy in the box and there's no other striker to step in and potentially offer a change up you know, without Smolov being in the list. So, um, yeah, weird. You know, strange to see Stanny doing stuff. You know, we, we've talked about maybe he would, you know, move on after this tournament, uh, you know, step down and let someone else take over. But not surprised to see the same old names get called up again because we know Stanny. It's just we're too optimistic and let ourselves get set ourselves up yeah. for this disappointment every time. Let's avoid. Exactly. Do you yeah. know we've been sort of a bit a bit naff of late? So let's avoid. Form has dropped, and ultimately probably didn't deserve it as much as years off. But you still would want him probably over you off at the very least. So uh, yeah, uh, some surprises for definite. I think letting ourselves get a little bit too excited is exactly just that. And I always seem to forget that Stanislav Chichesov is probably one of the most conservative with a small C managers in Russian football, even at the best of times. Um, so when you have what we would like to see is more of the previous under-21s, that under-21 golden generation, as a lot of Russian pundits like to call it, called up, but their poor performance at the under-21 Euros really put a lot of them in a little bit of a difficult position where, whereby that you see they're underperforming against teams that they really should be beating. And you have to wonder, well, would they do the same at an even higher level with that international pressure? Now, my biggest issue with... I mean, it, it's more so a problem with Russia right now, but the glaring omission from all of this conversation is Fyodor Smolov because of the form he's been in is unbelievable. And he's a totally different option up top to every other striker. But the three in Sobolev, Zuba and Zabalotny are all very similar. And there seems to be a glut of big target men in Russia right now, all the way through from the pay for L up to the to the um to the RPL. I mean the, the top scorer in the Finnell is, is a kind of like a bit of a target man striker. Now he's not as big as these three, but he is a bit of a header merchant to put it acron- anachronistically. And then some of the players who've hit a double double this season, they got uh Kamilo Kamilkov, he's a big target man striker, and then the three up top are all very similar. And I would just like to see a little bit of a difference in there. Like yes, I know Stanley likes to have the tip of the spear as as this this mould. But it would just be nice to have another option, at least even in the extended 40 or whatever, whatever men it is. I can't remember the top of my head. The extended squad before he does then cut it down. Richard, what, what do you think about this squad composition that Starney's named? Yeah, just to expand on the point about Smoloff, I'm really, really surprised he's not called him up. I think this deeper role, he's really flourished in it at Lokomotiv since the um, the winter break. And like we were saying, um, like we were all saying, it, it would just give Russia an, another option up front, you know, because Zabalotny, Sobolev, and Zuba are all big, tall strikers. Like we we're saying, um, it's not it's going to make them quite predictable at the Euros. That's the danger. Um, and even though he's not had a brilliant season, and you know, probably not had a brilliant last two seasons, to be honest, even someone like Chaloff would have offered some ver- variety. You know, um, admittedly, on his current form, has he done enough to really get in the squad? Probably not. But again, he's a different type of striker to to the three who have been picked. So, yeah, Smoloff and Chaloff really, and, and again, just take just three strikers. That's just very, very light, especially with UEFA now allowing, you know, a 26-man squad. So, yeah, I, I think Smoloff has has been really harshly done to there. You know, I mean, he's, he's come into the last parts of the season in form. You know, he'd offer you a chance to play in this um, in this new deeper role, which he, you know, he's been flourishing in at Lokomotiv on the Nikolic. He can also play as a poacher. Um, he's a different type of striker to those um, three that have been picked. You'd surely be taking a fourth striker and someone to offer you a bit of a difference. Um, yeah, like I agree with David as well. I think I think um, Lezervoice form has dropped, and he didn't have a particularly great on the twenty threes tournament either. Um, Lazarus form has dropped in recent weeks, so I can understand why he's not made the final cut. But then Ionov, you just sigh when you see his name on the team sheet. And then Kudryashov, who just looked he looked dreadful during the last international break. And Zhirkov, well, just can't wait for those two to retire at the end of this... Well, Zhirkov especially at the end of this season. 
I mean, how, and the crazy thing is he's probably actually going to start, which is just, it just beggars belief. It really just does. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's good to see a, a few youngsters in there, which is nice. And you, like we're saying, assume a decent portion of them are going to, a, a fair amount of them are going to make the squad. Um, but yeah, I think that squad's very predictable up front. I'm a bit concerned that a fourth striker hasn't been taken and someone who give you a bit more variety um, in the striking roles. I just hope it's not going to make them too predictable. Yeah, I just think there's a, a significant lack of balance across this. So if you look at where these players would be playing and have played under Stani, then he likes Karavayev at left-back. Samoshnikov, I think, has been very good for Ruben this season. I think he just thoroughly deserves the call-up. That's not an issue there whatsoever, but he is again a right-footed left-back. Further up the pitch, Rifat's been playing as a number 10, Golovin's been playing as a number 10, Zaharian's been playing as a number 10, Yanov um, been playing as either a false 9 or a 10 for Krasnodar, Cheryshev himself has played for a, as half of his appearances for Valencia this season as a 10. There's just... And then Moranchuk is, is, is better in that role too. And then up top, there's just... It's so one note. It is a little. There's a little bit of lack of real depth out and pace out wide of players who play there regularly. I think the only one really is is Denis Makarov, and there's no way he's going to start Makarov. I wouldn't be surprised if Makarov didn't even make it into the final 26 man squad, even though I would love to see him there because he is a genuine different option, a totally different option. What a lot of these wingers are that he has. I mean, Cheryshev had a great 2018 World Cup, but he seems to just have a good World Cup and then go missing and get injured for four years and then suddenly pop back up on the radar when it's a time for any form of international break. It's so bizarre. I mean, I know he scored recently. I got an assist recently for Valencia, whatever it was, but it's just such a squad that seriously looks to lack balance. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I was wrong about 2018. So... uh, there is some real talent in there. We've got more name players coming from abroad than ever before. More youngsters than Starney himself has named ever before. Some real exciting names throughout the side. And I think we will see a little bit more of a, a longer-term revolution after this Euros. I think I wouldn't be surprised if this was the likes of Zhirkov and Kudryashov's last tournament or last even appearance after the tournament. So it would be... I'll reserve my longer-term judgment for after the Euros because it is such a specific thing. But a worrying lack of balance there. And to move on, there was also the under-21 Russia squad named this week. Now, this is very much a new look after a lot of the previous cohort, as mentioned, were called up to the main squad or aged beyond the upper limit after the Euro 21 group stages. So... David, to save everybody from having to hear me butcher a bunch of more Russian names, would you like to go through the squad? Yeah, yeah, for definite. So um, the squad is now players who are born on the 1st of Jan 2000 or later. So uh, the last tournament, obviously, we had a bunch of 23-year-olds involved, mainly due to the delay from COVID. So uh, goalkeepers, we got Botnar, Boriska, uh, Katsev and Budachov. In defence, we've got Maslov, Klusevich, Bozhinov, Slyanov, Karpov, Brokin, Litvinov, Khotulev, Agapov, and Stepanov. Midfield, we've got Maradishvili, Omyarov, Prutsev, Chernikov, Ignatov, Kritsov, Sadulaev, Karapuzov, Oganesian, and Sevikian. And then up front, we've got Tukavin, Kosarev, and Klimov. So, what do you think about that? Because my uh, honest initial look at that is up front really a little bit barren. I mean, Tukarvin's mm. playing a lot for Dinamo, not necessarily always as a striker, but playing very good football at times this season. But after that, Kasarev and Klimov, it is a little bit breadth and depth, especially considering the size of the squad. Yeah, I mean, before the squad was called up, I was looking around, like, trying to think who could be called up you know there there's a list of reserves as well and the only other striker involved there is uh Timo Suleimanov um of Novgorod on loan from from Lokomotiv but like other than that like I could only list the, the only other two strikers who I thought might get in the squad were uh Kutovoy and Sabua from Krasnodar uh and you know and they they both played for the first team this season but didn't impress and they've 
you know, he played regularly for a struggling Krasnodar too in the in the Fernil. So um, you know, Tukarvin, you know, went to the under twenty one tournament uh, in the earlier this year and has obviously been playing regularly for Dynamo and looking pretty decent. Um, Kosarev and Klimov have a history with the Russian youth setup. They both come through and have played um, at the under seventeen and the under nineteen level. Um, I didn't have, didn't think I didn't think they would get called up. You know, Klimov's playing semi-regularly for Tambov in the Premier League at the moment. And Crossroad for Tom Tomsk and the Ferniels. Actually scored a few as well, to be fair. Uh, I didn't I didn't think they were off the level for this team. So um, when when I saw them there, I was like, damn, the, the striker shortlist at this at this age group is, is currently a bit thin. Um, obviously, we all thought Zakarian would be in this squad after his starring at the under-21s. But obviously, he's been uh, bumped up. And uh, Mukin, obviously, from the senior squad will also be eligible for this. Um, so there's two names there who who could have been involved here but aren't. Um, but yeah, the striker is definitely the weak part. You know, the, the list of defenders and midfielders are, uh, are solid. You know, the goalkeepers um, will, will be interesting to see. You know, none of these, none of the four goalies have had experience in the Premier League yet. You've got Botnar and Barisco who have had a fairly extensive Feniel experience. Cats have got a few cameos for Krasnodar this season during their their crisis and and struggled to say the least. I was I was surprised to see him involved. I must say. <laughs> so um so the midfield and the and the defense is is particularly strong. You know you've got Prokian who's looking quite good for for Sochi on loan at the moment. The right backs Bojanov and uh, Klusevich. That's you know they're two good right backs this season uh, in the Premier League. They both had excellent seasons. Uh, and then in midfield, you've got guys like uh, Ignatov, who's been excellent for Spartak 2, Maradishvili, Umyarov. You know, there's some there's some good players in there, uh, mixed in with some who are you know, less experienced at the top level yet. It's weird to hear that Stepanov is only is still in this squad because it feels like <laughs> Daniel Stepanov's been around for yeah. about five or six years now. I know, it's mad when he broke through for Rubinus. I think as a seventeen-year-old when he was in that first season, but um, he's been he's been decent for Rotor this season. You know, playing regularly, it's it makes sense that he's involved, considering how much football he's had this year. And admittedly, at left back, Russia do struggle. Like Silyanov is probably the the other left back in the squad, and he's played most of this season as a right back for uh, Kazanka in the PFL. So um, uh, that's one of the problem positions, probably in terms of depth, is uh, is left back after Stepanov. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that a lot of these players are really just stepping up to this level for for the first time, or at least in this. Yeah, the, the yeah. majority of this team aren't regulars here. This is very much the start of now what is a transition, and Russia do have some easier games, some more difficult games. They have Spain, Malta, Northern Ireland, Lithuania, and Slovakia all before the end of 2021. So I would preface by saying those who may expect a lot from these players, yes, they are promising talents, but even at under 21 level at the international stage, there's a very little experience here. So if they do have some poor results, don't worry. It's it's now it's more about a little bit of a, a more long-term thing. These are the, what the current crop are, who we're hoping to see break into the first team four, three to four years ago. So we a lot of them are. Zaharian's really a, an outlier and a bit of anomaly that he has jumped straight into the first team because of the effect he's had this season and just how good he has been. So I think that there's a lot of lower league talent here and that's really indicative of the limit check rules, David, do you think, and ensuring that that, that has been successful in the mm-hmm. Finna L? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I've been following the Lenucic rule for the last couple of seasons and uh, we've seen a lot more players of that age group, which is, you know, under under 21. I think, well, it's a certain date they've got to be born before. Um, I think there's been almost double the players used in, in match these squads, not necessarily played on the pitch, but at least on the bench. Uh, this season in the Fernier, obviously there's more teams involved, so that sort of helps them out. But, um, you know, a lot of these guys, by my maths, you mentioned this before, so I did a quick bit of maths. By my maths, 16 of these players have played in the FNL in the past three seasons, and six of them have played in the PFL this season. Um, so that's like, of the 27, that's 23 of them who have played at some point 
in the lower two divisions of, of Russian football. Uh, and the rest have all either not played uh, in those levels or play abroad. You know, we've, we've got one neighbor from abroad there. So, um, you know, a real testament, you know, guys like, uh, you know, a lot of these guys had their, had their proven grounds in the Fenio. You know, Bojanov last year, he broke out in the Fenio and this season he's been excellent in the Premier League. Uh, the same with Yarov, who came through at Chertanova. So um, it, it's it's promising to see this rule actually uh, having an impact. You know, the, it was it was always going to be interesting to see how this squad would come together. Um, looking at the current group of players playing in the RPL and realizing that under twenty one level there isn't enough for a full squad. So we we knew they were going to have to dip into that. Uh, other tier, or to the, or would they, you know, would they dip into reserve teams? I remember looking a few weeks back at like previous under twenty one tournaments, and it was all guys who were just playing for locomotives reserves, like not even in the Fernier or, or you know reserve teams at Premier League sides. So at least these guys, most of these guys, are playing regular professional football. Granted, you know, it's only the Fernier for a lot of them, but at least they've got that experience. But this will be a, you know, a whole new curve for them, you know, to play on international level. I know it's a little bit of a a, a very favourable thing in Russian football echo chambers to constantly have a go at the RFU, and for good reason. I mean, we we bang that drum of of the ridiculous structure sometimes and decisions that they make quite often, and and rightly so, more often than not. But credit where credit's due to the regulatory bodies who created this limit check rule, because the foreigner limit in the RPL is a joke, but the age limit that they created in the L is is really seriously one of the better decisions that they have made for the long-term financial success of these clubs and for the long-term development of the players themselves. And it's it's good to see that, I mean, maybe they're, maybe I'm being a little bit naive. Perhaps part of the reasoning was looking at potential long-term financial investment, but it's good to see that they have the players' long-term development in mind because this was a crucial, crucial development. And the sheer list of youngsters who are not just playing for the sake of being named to satisfy these rules, but thriving at this level really is... It's it's heartwarming to see for the potential long-term... the longevity and long-term future of the lower leagues. And I will, at the end, before as I do a little quick news roundup, discuss some potential structural changes or in the future and some current rebranding of the lower leagues. But before that, we will finish off with some analysis of our game of the week and potential ramifications of that, as that is, of course, as I mentioned earlier, Ruben Kazan's 4-2 win away at Arsenal this weekend. Now, we picked this one partly because it was an entertaining game and Ruben came from, came from behind to win it with a plomb, but it's also the ramifications ahead of next week, which is the last game week of the league. Now, as things stand, the only real critical junctures and battles that are left are that any two of uh, one of Arsenal, Ufa, or Rota could be relegated automatically, and two of Ruben, Sochi, or Sus- uh, Siska could all go through to the Conference League. Now, with of course Lokomotiv winning the cup, the position has dropped down to the next place team. Now, I will preface the relegation battle before we discuss it and, and the game itself with a bit of a licensing update. Um, Krilia, Torpedo and Baltica were granted licenses. Orenberg and Alania Vladikavkas have been denied them. Now, Orenberg have announced that they plan to appeal to the Court of Arbitrations for Sport over this regarding the, the stadium and have also made subsequent announcements about potentially um, expanding the stadium to meet the 10,000 limit and uh, the local government in Orenburg, of course, Orenburg are partially a uh, subsidiary of Gaz- Gazprom and partially local government owned. Uh, they have prom- promised funds to help the process of that. But there have been some changes in the regulations where in lieu of lower place teams moving up into the playoffs. So as things stand, because Orenburg and Alania have been denied promotion, 13th and 14th in the RPL would actually take precedence over the sides outside the playoffs. So if, say, Orenberg and Alania, who are second and... No, second and fourth, were denied licences, then it's expected Krillia and Nizhny would be promoted automatically. 
and there would be no promotion relegation playoffs as Arsenal and UFA, who are currently 13th and 14th, would stay up automatically. Now, this is still very much in the works because these we've had a look at these rules and they are unbelievably vague and obtuse. And I think it's honestly a little bit intentionally ambivalent so they can kind of be flexible. Um, read into that what you will. But anyway, um, Richard, you kept an eye on this game. Would you like to go through a little bit of an analysis of the match and and what really stood out for you? Yeah, um, this this definitely was the game of the week in the um, the RPL last week. Um, it was an I must stress, James, that um, if anybody watched this game, it was it was it was absolutely pouring it down in Tula. Um, the, 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 there was so much standing water on the side of the pitch, and you could you could look at it. You had to look. The weather was it was absolutely bucketing it down with rain. The sides of the pitch were just soaked with water, and yeah, it was it was. Um, the first half was interesting because um, basically one side of the pitch was where both sides were looking to attack. I noticed a few times Bakayev and um, Samosh and, and sorry Zuyev, Zuyev and Bakayev down the left flank for Rubin were attacking a lot, doing some combination play, um, and then and then it was Husevich for Arsenal Tula down Arsenal Tula's right. On the other half of the pitch, there was very, very few attacking chances down that half because, especially at the end where Rubin were attacking, it it really just there was so much standing water at that end. The ball just ended up just when it was being passed on the floor, it just stopped in the water. Um, quite a few examples of players um, when they were sliding to try and keep the ball in play, they slid and then they got absolutely soaked with water. It was quite funny. I remember Zuyev getting absolutely soaked once when trying to keep a ball in play. Um, and what happened? Yeah, and Arsenal two took a two goal um, lead in this game, um, and then you fought two nil half time. They were looking in a good position. Although I will set, state that they didn't have a huge amount of chance in that half, even though they went in two nil in front. I actually thought Rubin were just as good as them in the first half. They had some good chances themselves. Makarov had a few chances, and then then the second half, the game just completely changed. Um, credit to the referee and the, the VAR team. Um, they spotted a, a pull on Carl Starfelt's um, shirt by um, um, Tukachov, uh, who'd already been booked in the first half, and it was definitely clearly a penalty. He, he clearly pulled Starfelt back in the box, and then it was given at 2-0. Um, he was sent off for a second yellow card, deservedly so, uh, and Rubin scored the penalty, and after that, that just completely changed the game. Um, I really enjoyed Rubin's second goal. It was a punt-up field, which found... Um, Great hold-up play again by um, Despotovic, who laid off the pass, laid laid off the ball to Bakayev, who then slotted um, Makarov in, and um, he had a nice finish to make it two all. And then Starfelt scored from a corner to make it three two. And then right at the very last minute, I think I think I think um, Starfelt's goal came just after a couple of minutes after Rubin had levelled it. And then right at the end, the substitute Kostyukov made it four two. Um, and it was a brilliant turnaround by Rubin. Um, obviously, the, the red card and the penalty played an impact in changing the game. But I, I certainly thought, even though Rubin went in at halftime 2-0 down, they 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 matched Arsenal Tula in the first half. It, it certainly was an even half, just Arsenal Tula took their chances. Um, and a great win for Slutsky's team. And um, credit to them even in the first half, because even though it was really difficult conditions for both sides, to refer to Rubin and Slutsky, they were trying to get the ball down and, and pass it, uh, Rubin, in that first half. They weren't just going long with a play. They were, you know, trying to play football on a very difficult pitch in very difficult conditions. Um, and yeah, it's, they're looking a good bet now to to qualify for Europe. Obviously, Locomotive's Cup win now helps them because uh, fourth and fifth are going to be the Conference League spots. Um, and yeah, the ramifications for this at both ends of the table are pretty big because, you know, Rubin obviously now looking in a good position to qualify for Europe. And then Arsenal Tula, well, you know, they might still get relegated yet. Um, and they've been probably one of the disappointments of the season. They've got a decent squad for RPL level. I'm not saying that they've got a squad that's capable of finishing, you know, um, qualifying for Europe, but they've certainly got a squad which should be anywhere between 8th and 12th really in the league. Um, I'm personally not a fan of um, Dimitro Parfionov, the coach. Um, he didn't do a great job at Ural. I remember Ural playing in the cup semi-final last year against um, Himki, who obviously coached by Sugai Yuran at the time. And Himki, despite being a Fenel side, just completely outplayed them. Uh, they completely outplayed um, 
Parfionov saw Ural and he was he was sacked by Ural shortly after that. And this season at Arsenal Tula, he's not really getting, you know, anything much out of that squad, you know. Um I thought when they beat Zenit in the cup just after the restart, I thought, right, they're gonna get going now, they're gonna start climbing the table, but they're just not and yeah, they they really could get relegated this weekend, you know, because cause they're playing Ufa away and Ufa have looked a lot better on the Stukalov. Um and for a side like Arsenal Tula with, with some of the players that they have, they, they should be doing better, really. They sh- they shouldn't be in the relegation zone in the bottom four. So yeah, it's um it was a great win for Rubin, great turnaround and, and a deserved win. But Arsenal Tula are really looking nervously under their shoulders. Or over sorry, nervously over their shoulders now. Um, but it was a great game despite the weather, <laughs> which was absolutely yeah. horrendous. I think Arsenal, I mean, they're not a small club or a young club. They were like founded just after the Second World War. But Arsenal are one of those teams who have made a success quite quickly, quite recently. Uh, they, of course, were promoted two years in a row from the PFL to the FNL and then through the RPL under Elenichev. Um So they were really like fast tracked and then obviously solidified that got to Europe and then this season despite the managers and having in my eyes who is one of the worst managers in the RPL if not the worst in Dimitri Parfionov the team like you said Richard is really far better than where it should be I think at this, it was near the start of the season after the close of the transfer window. I looked at their business and thought, you know what, this is this is a pretty solid team. You have Kenny Lutsenko was on the back of, had just came off the back of the season of his life. Um, they've got some strong players throughout the squad. Um, Maxim Balyaev was close to a Spornaya call not even 18 months ago. And then with the Kangwa brothers, they've got some of the best and most dynamic um Affordable foreigners in the league, I'll say. I think is the best way of saying it. Affordable. In I that like Klosevich. Klosevich, I quite like. Yeah. You know, he came through last year, looked quite good. Apparently, I think David was saying on one before one of the pods last year that I think Klosevich has had trials at Porto and Benfica in the past. You know, he's in the under-21 squad. So, yeah, they've got some good players. So, it is depressing to see them in this state. And I think a lot of that comes down to Parfionov, but more so a lack of a long-term vision. They've been one of those clubs where, at the very top, at the director level, have been run far too in the short term. And God, believe me, I'm a Sutherland fan. I know exactly what it's like for a club to be run in the short term, <laughs> looking from bounce to bounce. And it's exactly that. It's, it's a team of players who are better than they are. A team of players who think that they are better than they are as well, mind some of them. But then also, at the very top level, it's it's bouncing from manager to manager. They they had Cherovchenko and Popaldi and and Parfionov. Where's the vision? Where's the long termism here? Why is it every time a manager comes in, his rule is law, and then only to be sacked? The average lifespan of a manager in modern football is less than eighteen months. Think more long term. They're suffering because of that. So. They've only got themselves to blame, but that squad should not be where it is. David, were you? Ha- I, I guess you were pretty damn ecstatic with the Ruben comeback. Oh yeah, I mean, just to add to, to Arsenal, they've got to go to Ufa next week away, and they've got one away point all season, uh, which is yeah. I, I checked, I checked among the top five leagues. That's the worst out of the top five leagues. Like none, no, no team in that in the top five leagues has got a worse away record. I didn't check any further past that. But I'd also checked historically in the RPL. Uh, it's the worst away record in at least the last six years. Um, unless they get a win, obviously, on the final day, which would, uh, I think, bring them level with Skarhabarovsk, as I recall. So uh, that's uh, that's some very bad form. One point in 14 games away from home all season. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I was delighted with the, with the result, obviously, as a Ruben fan. I did not... At halftime, I was very deflated. I just could not see us getting back in it. Obviously, we were lacking future still with injury, um, although he's back in training, and we were missing Huang as well. I just thought, who? how are we going to get back in this game? And then, yeah, post-penalty, we were just uh, absolutely dominant, you know. Uh, got another goal quite quickly off the counter, through Makarov, Kostov, and then nodded off a corner, and then 
we uh, we just saw out the game and and took a chance. Ivan, it was uh, it was interesting, and I, I want to give credit to uh, Ivan Ignatiev, who's been long long term abused pretty much by all of us on this podcast, myself included, uh, for his very poor form since signing for Rubin for a decent fee as well. Um, but he came on. Skutsky made the choice to bring him on in the first half with about in the 40th minute, which is an odd time to make a sub. You know, why not wait till half time? It was no injury. Uh, but he brought him on, went two up front, and, uh, you know, he, he actually had a decent game. You know, he, uh, he got in behind a couple of times. Uh, he, he got the assist for the final goal. He was involved. Uh, he was just involved. He was just involved, which was just a difference, you know. He still looked rusty. Uh, and, you know, he, he admitted after the game that, you know, he's found this season hard, you know, struggling for game time with Despotovic playing so well. Um, but, but all credit to him because he, he had a decent performance. Um, and, yeah, thanks to Loco obviously winning the cup. All we've got to do is, uh, is I think, minimum of a draw against Rotor on the final day, you know, at home, which, you know, ultimately we should be beating Rotor, who are a team at the bottom touch wood. Um, you know, a win gets us fourth place minimum. If uh, I think if Lokomotiv drop points against Ural, it seems unlikely we we would I think sneak third place if we win and they lose, which uh, you know, would be a bit of a pipe dream. I didn't realize until yesterday that there's no direct places in the Conference League. Everyone has to qualify, so that did uh, put me off slightly. Rio and I realized mm. that um, no matter what happens, we're going to have to qualify for this. I was hoping we'd be in Europe and just get a nice group stage, but uh, that seems to not be the case. But you know, just getting back in Europe for Rubin after after so many poor seasons would uh, you know would be fantastic. And it's uh, it's already before this game, it's our best season since like 2013. So uh, yeah, really really good win, really good win. Yeah, I think with the Conference League, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly. Every team has to qualify from some form or another. They either play in the playoffs or are eliminated from the Europa League playoffs. I don't think anyone just automatically is in the Conference League group stage, yeah, apart yeah. from maybe the ones who win like a domestic cup. Like I think England have got one team for the Conference League, and that would be the team who win the, wins the League Cup. I think those perhaps might, but... On league position, it, it it's it's a weird one because they all have to qualify, so they're all going to be playing in like July. So, Richard, any any last words on the on the potential European battle? Just to come in on the Conference League, I did have a look yesterday actually because um, I'm preparing an article, future article for it. I'll just give you a little bit of a snip. Um, it's not for RFN; it's for another site. But um, but yeah, I actually I saw the other day, and the the team finishing, I think, in the second qualifying round for the Conference League will be the team that finishes fifth in the RPL. I had a look the other day; they would be seeded. Um, I, I did have a, a look at that and I checked that the other day. So they, they would be seeded. I'm not sure about the third qualifying round, which the fourth team place team enters or the playoff round, but they obviously that's dependent on results, isn't it? And um, what your coefficient is. But I think the side who finishes fifth and goes into the second qualification round of it is is seeded from the RPL. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think every team does have to qualify for it. I think the teams in the top five leagues you will enter, they're only getting one place each. It's mainly a competition for the leagues sixth and below in the uh, UEFA coefficient ratings. Um, they go into the playoff round and I think everybody else's representatives goes into the third round and below, depending on strength of league. So, yeah. And like I say, I, 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 and one thing I will say is, is that and in a way, I'm very happy if Sochi and Rubin qualify for it because we've been bemoaning, you know, sometimes some of the poor quality of managers in the in the RPL. But if Sochi and Rubin qualify, they've got two of the best managers in the RPL in in uh, Fedotov and Slutsky. So I think that can make a difference. And um, I, say, I say I'm really looking forward to this competition. Um, I think, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Kvitsa yet at Rubin, but if, 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 if they can get a good, if they do end up selling in for big money, then you know that's a chance to you know re- revitalize bits of the squad with that. And um, I'm intrigued to see what Sochi can do. You know, um, I think they will now start to probably they've stabilized themselves in the RPL now. They qualify for it, so you know it might be time now to not just rely on a few loans from maybe still rely on the odd loan from Zenit here and there, but maybe branch out. They've still got foreign spots available, so I'm actually looking forward to seeing how these two clubs do in Europe. I mean, I know a lot of people have been moaning Siskan, Krasnodar not qualifying for it, but 
recently in the last few years, especially Sascada performances have been dreadful in Europe. So give other, let's give other teams a go. I mean, I think, you know, Sochi and Rubin could do no worse, you know, than Sascar have done. So, um, no, I'm, I'm quite happy. And um, two good coaches, hopefully the RPL will get some good results with um, Rubin and Sochi coached by two good coaches. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, it's really not going to be difficult, more, much more difficult to get better than last season, considering the two Europa League teams who had to qualify were knocked out by minnows at the earliest opportunities. And then we went through... Uh, one of the worst group stages ever where only one with only one win. So hopefully changing up the guard a little bit in this aspect could could help that. Now the conference league's a weird one because I'm both excited by it and incredibly pessimistic about it. I think as the football nerd in me that most of us here are and most of us listening probably are, um, we'd all love it. I mean Liechtenstein, the winner of the Liechtenstein Football Club, has a potential chance to play in the Conference League. That's great. That's so. That's that's what it should be. Let's let's have a competition for the next level of elite. So it's not just the same bloody twelve teams all trying to bugger off in the first place. But the other side <laughs> of this is, I don't know if the wider interests and wider public opinion and wider viewing figures will be there. Uh, I hope it is, but. I'm not quite sure what the long-term life of this league is going to be. And you mentioned Suski is one of the best managers. If anyone has seen the, uh, I think it's on Shirkov's Instagram, the video on Yuri Shirkov's Instagram of of Slutsky just absolutely losing it and berating the, the the Russia team when he was manager back then and then Shirkov just getting destroyed by him. It, it's It's a real good watch and, it's good to see that other side of Stutsky because we all know how happy-go-lucky he can be and a bit jovial. So it's good to see both sides of the man. But anyway, that is the end of this week's RFN podcast. I will quickly finish off by mentioning that news that I did tease earlier that the the headline is that the PFL will cease to exist. So at the end of this season and from the beginning of the 2021-22 championship, all pay for L clubs will become part of the L. So don't worry, it's not like they're going to be a 110 division league yet. But the there'll basically be the L where it is now, in, or 20 teams. And then below that will be the clubs of the former pay for L divided into four different groups. So that that is the official end of the pay for L, which is kind of expected. So a lot of people did really expect that after the eastern group was was removed and 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 submerged into the other divisions last season. Some have said that this is a bit of a pointless move. I personally can see the efficacy and the and and the reasoning behind this, in that the L will now be one individual body that will regulate the entirety of of lower league football in Russia. It very much it, it's based upon the English model of the Premier League and then directly below that the Football League is directly responsible for the long term and short term regulation, stability and control of these clubs from afar. Uh, it's an, it's also good marketing. Um <laughs> the Piffa L is a very, very dated the marketing around it all looks very 1992 when the PFL was created. Obviously, this is followed in two years ago. The RPL was rebranded. Last year, the FINAL, and next year will be, or this year, and then next year will be the PFL. So this is following in the trend of an overhaul of the image, the outward-looking image of Russian football, which, while change is not always nice for some of us purists, I think it's inevitable for the long-term survival or long-term marketability of the leagues. So it is, it's a good thing. It's not as sensationalist as the headlines have claimed. It's not really like the death of the PFL. It's exactly the same thing, really. It's just more regulations, more unification of the regulations, and more unification of the marketing around it. So I think it's a good move. Um, There is an article on the site that I wrote a few years ago where I was actually arguing for a regionalization of the FINAL. And in that, one of the routes I investigated was called the Unified Proposals League, in which the four 
Finnael, a pay for L divisions and the 20 Finnael clubs would would then split into six regional divisions directly below the RPL and in that would would and they would be sized in such a way that the east wouldn't just be left like it was um which is an interesting development and i wonder if this is perhaps a step towards that now directly below the RPL no but a step towards restructure and allowing clubs to geographically and financially become more self-sufficient. Good, good, definitely. Um, like I say, the Fennel has made some good decisions of late and and really are leading the way in some of their forward-thinking developments, like as like the limit checks. So for them to now be subsumed, the PFL to be subsumed within the Fennel and controlled in that way, it, it, I think it's personally a good thing just for the unification. So that is, like I said, the end of the podcast. We'll be back next week for the little bit of a review of the end of the RPL and Fennel season as we do hit the hit the business end of the year. And then keep an eye out in the future for the obligatory team of the season podcast in which we'll be handing out some RFN awards. Until then, goodbye for now. Идет футбольный матч, летит на поле мяч. Веди его, беги, точнее его ударь. Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле самых ловких и смелых плечов. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, быстрота, увлечение, расчет.